Turn to Mark 14, if you would. I hope that we're not on holiday hangover today. I felt like the singing finally got where it needed to be about halfway through. And so I hope that you haven't landed the plane. I hope that you aren't checking out. I really believe the word of God is perhaps the most important thing in, in all of our services. Because I'm preaching it because it's the only perfect holy book to ever exist. And, and so it's a book that can change our life forever. And I'm convinced of that. Um, we don't have a lot of time to waste today. I've got, I've, I've got a different kind of intro to give you. I want to I wanna jump into a big picture look at the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying all year since the beginning of this year. And, and, and I want to give you a big picture look at it. And all of this will contribute uh, to, to the main points of my sermon. But, but you're going to have to want to learn today and want to study today. And I know you, I know you do, but hang with me. Um, as we make our way through this introduction, because it's going somewhere and we, we just don't have a lot of time for small talk. The, the book of Mark is separated into what I'd call three acts. Act number one covers chapters one through chapter eight, verse 21. And the theme is the discernment of Christ's person. So it answers the question, who is Jesus? A lot of people thought he was just a good man. A lot of people thought he was just another prophet. Some people thought he was there to, to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. Very few people believe that he was actually the son of God. So Mark establishes to his readers, and Jesus was establishing in the first eight chapters to his original disciples and, 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 and to the, the region that he was ministering, that he is Jesus Christ, the son of God. At two covers chapters 822 through chapter 10 and verse 52, and it's the acceptance of Christ's person. Jesus wanted to get across to the disciples what he came to accomplish. He said, I didn't come to be an emperor. I came to seek and save that which is lost. I'm not looking for power. I'm not looking for prestige. And I'm not looking for position. I'm looking to suffer and serve the world. Act chapter 3 is what we're in now. It covers chapters 11 through 16. And now Jesus is about to pass the mantle to his disciples. And he's going to teach them how they can stay faithful to his mission. He is staying faithful to his mission all the way to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. But now he's teaching his disciples, here's what I need you to do after I leave. And so we're in a very important part of the book. In fact, I want to jump back to chapter 13. If you have a copy of God's word, go there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples a parable of a doorkeeper. The verse calls it a porter, but it's a, it's a doorkeeper. And the theme is, is to remain faithful until he returns. Remember, I'm going somewhere here. Follow me. Mark 13, verse 32. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. This is a parable. He left his house. He gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter or the doorkeeper to watch. Now he looks at his disciples and said, here's the point. You need to watch too. Why? For ye know not when the master of the house cometh. He could come at evening, he could come at midnight, he could come at the cock crowing, or he could come in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say unto all, I say this to everybody. Here's your responsibility as disciples. Until I come, watch. The, the point of the parable is to teach us to stay alert, uh, 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 alert to, to stay prayerful and watchful until Jesus comes back. In other words, Jesus is saying this, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Now I want you to notice at the end of verse 35, he gives four timestamps, or four watches of the day in which they should be faithful. Look at him, he gives the evening time, 
midnight time, the time of the cock crowing, and then the early morning. His point is that, that they should be found faithful at all times. Meaning, this command to be a faithful disciple isn't just a one-time event or something you do once a week on Sundays. It's a way of living. Christ didn't promise to come back on a Sunday when you're doing the right thing. That's why he said it, even midnight cock crowing or the morning, be ready, be faithful at all times. Now, what does that have to do with our message? Well, the same four watch scheme comes up in the last couple chapters in what we call the passion account, which is the account of Christ's arrest and his crucifixion, which we're starting to study this morning. You can study it on your own, but the evening time is going to come up in our study this morning when it talks about the Lord's Supper. That's the evening time. The midnight hour is going to be in our study as well. Gethsemane and in in Jesus' arrest. The time of the cock crowing is going to come up next week. That's Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. And then the early morning hours is the crucifixion of Jesus. So the narrator's goal here is to portray Jesus as an example of faithfulness. Jesus just told his disciples, be faithful at all times during this time, this time, this time, and this time. And now Mark is going to show Jesus being faithful during evening, midnight, cock crowing, and early morning hours. Now, why is this so important to Mark to get across this? Because it's really a literary technique. Well, remember, Mark is writing originally to some converts in Rome who, when they first were reading this, were being persecuted for their faith. And he wants them to learn from Jesus what it means to respond faithfully and appropriately to the temptations and persecutions that they're facing. And not just them, but the Holy Spirit church. Listen, he wants every believer from every age to learn from Jesus' example what it means to be a faithful disciple during trying times. The title of the message is this, Faithful Like Jesus. Because we're going to take a big hunk of, uh, a, a chunk of, of Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 52. And we're going to see what Mark does. He's going to highlight two parts of Jesus' faithfulness, two, two, two aspects of his faithfulness to God, even during trying times. And, and it's in an effort to get us to be faithful like Jesus in the midst of our own trying times. Listen, Brother Joel saying about it. We're living in trying times. Being a Christian today, now let's, let's just be honest, in America, we still have it pretty easy. Can I, can, can I get a witness? So let's not feel sorry for ourselves. But, but it's not easy all the time, even for Americans to be Bible believers. The winds of doctrine are blowing everywhere right now. And, and people can take the Bible or they can leave the Bible for the most part. Everything is relative truth based on your own circumstance. I'm here to tell you, there is still absolute truth for the disciple to follow. And Jesus Christ still expects us to be faithful like he was in his trying times. So we're going to study the Last Supper and then we're going to study Gethsemane. And we're going to learn two things about how to remain faithful like Jesus. Here's the first thing. Write it down. Faithful disciples trust God's control. Faithful disciples trust God's control. The fancy theological term for God's control is God's sovereignty. You might have heard that before. 
That, that speaks of his complete control over all things. I want you to watch closely in these opening verses of our text how, how God's sovereignty is put on display. And more importantly, how Jesus places his full confidence in his father's control of all things. Look at verse 12. In the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go into the city and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now watch this. The text informs us that the man will meet the disciples. Don't miss that detail. Apparently, he would be on the lookout for them. This was something that God had already arranged. Okay, look deeper. Verse 14. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, the master saith, where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And watch this. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Isn't it interesting that the owner of the house didn't push back uh, once, even one time from the disciples' odd request to meet in his home? I don't know about you. Somebody shows up at my door and says, we're supposed to have the guest chambers. I ain't letting them in. I ain't even answering the door. I have one of them ring doorbells. I don't even have to answer the door now. The guest chambers, he goes even further. They were already prepared. They were already furnished for the last supper before the guys arrived. Aren't you, aren't you getting the sense that all of this is being scripted by God? Then notice how the last supper dialogue begins with Jesus giving this confident assertion of the future, even though it involved personal betrayal by one of his own. Verse 18, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth me shall betray me. Drop down to verse 21. The son of man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Good work for that man if he had never been born. Drop down to verse 27. And Jesus saith unto him, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Are you seeing what's happening? Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows who's going to do it. He knows how they're going to do it. And he's not even attempting to save himself. He's not attempting to vindicate himself. He, he can see how his father has orchestrated all these events that must happen in order for his purposes on this earth to be fulfilled. And even though God's sovereignty involves personal pain and personal betrayal, Jesus acknowledges it. He accepts it. And he trusts his father through it all. I want you to see what Mark is doing. He is using Jesus' example to point his original readers and to point our attention as Christ's disciples today to the source of our confidence during trying times. Our confidence is not in what we can control. Our confidence is in what God is already controlling. Mark's telling us if you want to be faithful like Jesus, you're going to have to trust that God is working all things together for your good, even the hard and hurtful things in your life. I like to think about it like this. When a, a pilot gets in a commercial airplane, his job is to get hundreds of passengers from point A to point B safely. 
But that pilot, as experienced as he may be, is completely reliant on air traffic control. They're going to tell him at what elevation he needs to fly. They're going to tell him at what speed he needs to fly. They're going to tell him when he needs to make a slight turn or a slight change in elevation so he doesn't hit another aircraft head on or, or so that he can avoid a dangerous storm. Those pilots can't see everything that air traffic control can see, but they've learned to trust them. They must trust that air traffic control is working for their good. God is like a perfect, all-powerful version of air traffic control. He's not sitting in a tower, he's sitting on his throne. And he can see all things at all time. He knows the traffic in your life. He knows the turbulence in your life. He knows the wind in your life. He knows the storm in your life. He knows the head-on collisions that are coming your way. And he is pulling right now. He's pulling the necessary strings and making the necessary arrangements to fulfill his good purposes in your life as I preach. This is where your faith has to come in. You have to believe on, on, on the authority of God's word that God is always in control. Even if you feel some turbulence, he's still in control. Even if you make a terrible mistake, he's still in control. Even if somebody betrays you and hurts you and it feels like what they did is going to derail God's plan for you, God is still in control. In order to stay faithful during trying times, you have to trust that, that, that God is using everything, good and bad, to accomplish his purpose in your life. This is what Joseph understood so well. He was sold out by his brothers to be a slave in Egypt. He literally went from his daddy's favorite to the most humiliating low-level job in his society, that of a slave. But because he trusted God's control, he made the best of a bad situation. And God used what was bad for something good in Joseph's life. And because Joseph believed in God's sovereignty, he stayed faithful. And because he stayed faithful, he was eventually promoted to basically second in charge in all of Egypt. He went from slave to vice emperor. Had he never been a slave, he would have never been a vice emperor. That position of power eventually brought him to contact again years later with the very brothers that betrayed him. And when they figured out who Joseph was, because they didn't recognize him been so long, they were fearful for their life. They thought he would leverage his new position to, to, to exact revenge on them and vindicate himself. But Joseph did just the opposite. He forgave them and he blessed them. How did he do that? Because he trusted in God's control of all things. How do I know? Genesis 50, 20 says, but as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you thought evil against me, but God met it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph told his brothers, you thought you were in charge, but I want you to know something, Bubba. God's been in charge this whole time. Amen. And he's taken your betrayal of me and used it to accomplish his good purposes in and through me. Joseph stayed faithful to God and Jesus stayed faithful to God, even in the midst of hurtful times, because they trusted that God could turn what's bad into what's good. Now contrast Jesus' example with the disciples' example. Verse 29. But Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. God, you're talking about someone else. And Jesus said unto him, barely I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise, 
Likewise, also said they all. Watch here. Jesus had confidence in his father's control. The disciples had confidence in themselves. And we know who was found faithful in the end. Not the disciples, they fled. It was Jesus who endured the cross and it teaches us something vitally important. Your trust in God determines your faithfulness to God. Your trust before the trying time comes, by the way. You don't get a rent trust. You don't get a borrowed trust. There's not a bank account in heaven, not an ATM machine for trust. You build trust while you're on your feet. That way, when God puts you on your back, you got a full account. Since our text talks about God's control, even through betrayal, let's just talk about that in our life by way of application for this first point. Because I'm not so naive as to think that nobody in here has never been betrayed. Maybe everyone in here has experienced betrayal at some level, maybe recently or, or even some time ago, but it still hurts like it was recent. Somebody you loved, somebody you trusted, stabbed you in the back. Or they distanced themselves from you with little to no explanation. Or they misunderstood you and now they're out to slander your good name. Or hey, they just flat flat out disappointed you and that feels like a betrayal based on everything you've done for them. Perhaps nothing is more trying to the Christian than to be betrayed or at least to feel betrayed. But this is where your trust and confidence comes in. May I ask you a question today? In the midst of your own betrayal, are you going to trust that God is still in control? Are you going to trust that God can can still take something as ugly and as hurtful as betrayal and work it together for your good? Or are you going to try to take matters into your own hands? Are you going to try to place confidence in yourself and start manipulating and and defending and, and vindicating yourself in an effort to take care of everything your way and in your time? You say to yourself, I'll clean up this mess. Listen, your trust in God determines your faithfulness through betrayal. If you place your confidence in in yourself during times of relational strife, listen, you will make a mess of things just like Peter did. You'll let the betrayal determine your actions and let it determine your reactions. You'll be vindictive toward the person that hurts you. You'll get bitter at God for letting this happen to you. You'll get less interested in church because your bitterness might be directed towards someone you worship with every Sunday. But if you place your confidence in God during these times, you'll stay composed like Jesus did. Because you know God's still in control. You'll remain humble like Jesus did. You'll endure pain with integrity like Jesus did. You'll forgive your betrayer like Jesus did. You'll be faithful like Jesus when you trust that God never loses control. And listen, we could apply this to so many situations. That we face that are difficult, not just betrayal, but sickness and financial setbacks and problems at work and disappointed expectations in life and a a broken marriage and a strained relationship with your child or anything else that might qualify in your life today as a trying time. Hear me, church. God might not have orchestrated every bad thing that has happened in your life, but through his sovereignty, he can take the bad and work it for good. You have to trust in his ability to do that. If you don't, listen, you will soon find yourself like the disciples, struggling to stay faithful to Christ during trying times. 
You want to flee and get away from it as far as you can if you feel in your heart that God has lost control. So there's the first thing we learn from Jesus. Trust in God's control. Here's the second thing we learn. Faithful disciples submit to God's will. If you're still with me, say amen. Amen. So we're past the evening watch now in our text. That's the Lord's Supper. We're going to move into the midnight watch where Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This is where he would pray to the Father. This is where he would ask his disciples to do the same on his behalf. He's literally hours away from his arrest and his trial. Verse 32. And they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I yet pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John. Began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little. And he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cut from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In order to appreciate the submissiveness of Jesus, we can't forget something. He was fully God and he was fully man at the same time. Because he was fully God, he could see and know what awaited him on the cross. Because he was fully man, the cross scared him and caused him anxiety. See, as God, he arranged his death, but as man, he wrestled with dying, especially by way of crucifixion. And so he asked his father if it was possible to take this death away from him. Listen, he didn't want to die this way. He wasn't a criminal. He didn't want to be stripped naked in front of his own mother. He didn't want to be beaten with a cat of nine tails. He didn't want to be mocked and ridiculed. He he didn't want to have his beard plucked from his face. He didn't want to have a crown of thorns rammed into his skull. He didn't want to be hung on a cross to suffocate to death. He didn't want this. But ultimately, he submitted to it. He said, not my will, but thine be done. Here's how I know he submitted. Not just because I know the end of the story, but literally because of what he did next when Judas came to betray him. Look at how he responded to this. Verse 43. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with them a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master. He's so fake, right? And kissed him. They laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them, it was Peter, stood by, drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. As Jesus was putting his ear together, back together, Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you took me not. Now watch this. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. You need to follow this. Here comes Judas. Jesus knew what Judas was doing. Hello. He knew that Judas was a snake. He knew it all. But because he was submitted to the father, guess what? He let it happen. 
Then when Peter grabbed his sword and tried to defend him, Jesus literally told him, stop. Rebuked him. If he wanted to defend himself, he would have already done that. Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Because of the last statement in verse 49, he said the scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus said this, the will of my father has been so clearly revealed and I must be yielded to it. I must be submitted to it. Now you put yourself in his sandals for a moment. You're God. You don't even have to say anything out loud. All you got to do is think it will happen. Tell me, would you receive the kiss of Judas without at least saying something back? You tell me, would you not find some weird sense of pleasure when you saw Peter chop his ear off? I mean, you're supposed to be sanctified in God and all, but in your heart you're thinking, that a boy, Pete. <laughs> See, we look at this like, God, like Jesus is only God. He's fully man. And he tempers all of that. He doesn't retaliate. Doesn't vindicate himself. Doesn't go on Facebook and blow him up. All he does is say, not my will, but thine be done. Your submissiveness to God determines your faithfulness to God. Your trust in God, number one, determines your faithfulness to God. But number two, your submissiveness to God determines your faithfulness to God. Hear me, when it's crunch time and the circumstances of your life bring you to a decision, you will either submit to your flesh or you will submit to your father. Look what the disciples did in verse 37. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. And saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, watch this, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saw him sleeping. And he saith unto them, sleep on now. Take your rest. Get a nap. It's enough. The hour's come. It's too late to watch now. The Son of Man's betrayed in the hands of sinners. So rise up. Let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. That's so sad. As Jesus is wrestling to submit to God's will, the disciples had quit wrestling a long time ago. And the only thing they're submitting to is their flesh. They can't even stay awake to pray for the Savior. They said they would never forsake. Your submissiveness to God's will determines how faithful you'll be to God's will in crunch time. Now, when I thought about how to apply this point, bring the message home today, my mind went to some of those situations that, that we all find ourselves in that really challenge our submissiveness to God's will as opposed to our submissiveness to our, our flesh. Now, I know we'll never have Garden of the Gethsemane moments where we are awaiting our betrayal and our arrest and our trial and our death sentence. I hope none of us have to face that. But in a way, we do face those moments when our flesh collides with God's will for our life. When what we want and what God wants is very different. So let's just 
stay in this thread for a second of being betrayed and hurt and offended. Follow me. Did you know God's word is so very clear on how to handle personal offenses? Did you know that? Christians live like God doesn't even talk about that in the Bible. Literally. They respond so often the very opposite of the way God says faithful Christians ought to respond to personal hurt. God says, here's the first thing we ought to do. Forgive. I know you're not liking it, but you can say amen because it's right. He says, forgive. Then you know what else he does? He says, respond to their evil with good. Oh, it gets worse. He says, pray for your enemies. Hard to hold a grudge towards someone you're taking to the throne of God every day. The gospel of Matthew even teaches us that we shouldn't even continue spiritual activity without getting right with a person who offended us or that we offended. Leave your gift at the altar. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, go get right with your brother and come back and worship me. I mean, God's word is so very clear about the roots of bitterness that grow in our, in our hearts and trouble us and thereby many be defiled, the book of Hebrews says. My point is God's will is not a mystery when it comes to how we should respond when we're offended by people, yet our flesh is screaming at us to do the opposite. Like Jesus in Gethsemane, we know the Father's will, but we don't like it and we're wrestling with it. Our, our flesh is, is, is screaming at us to vindicate ourselves and to have a pity party and to hold a grudge and to criticize. I would urge you today, Christian, to submit to God's will in how to handle personal hurt because how your flesh wants to handle it will only make matters worse for you. I thought about this one. We're talking about when, when our flesh and our spirit, they collide when we're personally corrected. I mean, who, who at work, who at church says, hey, hit me with your best shot. You wake up Monday morning, go to your boss and say, tell me where I'm terrible. Who does that? Well, the book of Proverbs is clear that the only way you grow is when you're confronted. The only way you grow is when you're taught. Only way you grow is when you're corrected. That's how you gain wisdom. And Solomon makes it clear in the book of wisdom that only a fool rejects and resists counsel and discipline and correction. Listen, church, if God loves you enough to put somebody in your life that doesn't tell you what you want to hear, but has the guts to tell you what you need to hear, even though that risks the relationship temporarily, you would do well to submit to God's word through that person. Respond humbly, the teachable spirit to their counsel. Yet when we're corrected, our flesh is screaming at us to respond pridefully and respond defensively and to respond argumentatively, argumentatively and, and to respond even indifferently as a, as a form of self-preservation. If you want to be faithful for the long run in your Christian life, you're going to have to learn to submit to correction even when it hurts. Here's another one in our society today. It's very, very real. Sexual temptation. Talking about when our flesh and our spirit collide. We live in a sexually driven society. 
The devil is constantly warring with our souls when it comes to this area of lust. But God's word is so clear in the book of 1 Thessalonians 4. It literally says this, for this is the will of God. That's how the verse opens. For this is the will of God. And here's how it ends. That ye should abstain from fornication. Stay away from the sexual relationship outside the vows of a heterosexual marriage. That's what fornication means. Yet in our culture, sex is okay so long as you love the person. You don't have to be committed to the person in marriage. And so, of course, your flesh is going to say, submit to the world standards for the sexual relationship, because that's a lot easier. But if there's anything that can really mess up your life, if you do it wrong, hear me, it's the sexual relationship. So be careful. You know, another area in which our, our, our flesh and our spirit collide, it's with our words. The tongue is one of the smallest muscles in our body, but it's still the muscle that gives us the most trouble. Why? Well, because so often when it comes to what we say, we just do what our flesh says. If our flesh says say something harsh, we say something harsh. If our flesh tells us to lie, we lie. If it tells us to complain, we complain. It tells us to criticize, we criticize. It tells us to gossip, we gossip. It tells us to cuss, we cuss. Yet isn't God's word so clear when it tells us how we use our words? It tells us to speak with grace. It tells us to speak with self-control. It tells us to speak with gentleness. It tells us to speak with truth. It tells us to speak with sincerity. It tells us to speak with patience. Listen, all disciples, including myself, will daily wrestle with the flesh when it comes to the words that come out of our mouth. But faithful disciples submit to God's will for their words more than they submit to what their flesh wants them to say in the moment. How about in our parenting? Sometimes... Being a courageous parent is the opposite of what our flesh is telling us to do. Can I get a witness, parents? You ever get wore out? Our flesh tells us to let our kids have what they want for the sake of tranquility in the home and peace in the home. The motto is this, say yes and they shut up. God's word says that parents should train up their child in the way they should go, not let them go in whatever way they want to go. Sometimes our flesh wants to deal with our children like, like the easy way. We just want to scream at them. We want to get angry with them. We, we want to intimidate good behavior in them. When God's word tells us so clearly that we ought to nurture their hearts. That involves more than hard discipline. It involves sitting down with God's word and showing them a better way, teaching them a better way, training in them a better mindset. It involves getting to their heart, not just conforming or, 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 or trying to transform or modify their outward behavior. When's the last time mom and dad, instead of screaming or instead of just giving in, you sat down with your kid? Opened up the Bible and said, can I show you a better way? Composed, filled with the Spirit, not intimidating. Man, that's hard. Come on now. That's hard. I messed up on it yesterday. 13 times. <laughs> How about in our marriage? There may not be a single relationship this side of heaven that requires more submission than marriage. 
And by the way, I'm not talking about just the wife submitting to the husband. I'm talking about submitting to one another. That's the Bible idea. Mutual submission. Dying to yourself. Serving your spouse. Making sacrifices for your spouse. Loving your spouse. Watch here. In the way they feel loved. Which requires that you dwell with them according to knowledge and understand them. See, our flesh will scream at us to be selfish. Our flesh will scream at us to be short with each other. Our flesh will scream at us to be irritable or to be demanding or to be impatient or to be angry or to be bitter or to be picky or to be indifferent or to be ungrateful. But if you want to be faithful in your marriage for the long run, you'll have to submit to God's will for marriage a lot more often than you submit to what your flesh tells you to do in your marriage. Yeah. Here's the truth today. You can either be faithful like Jesus or you can be faithless like the disciples. But let me warn you as I close. Should you choose to be faithless like the disciples, hear me you will end up experiencing the same thing they experienced in the end. This is where our text closes, verse 50 through 52. And they, that's the disciples, all forsook him and fled. Mark throws in an interesting detail. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Why would Mark include a random detail at the end of a text like this? It it makes sense that he would record how the disciples fled and forsook Jesus. But why mention a random dude who took his clothes off and ran away from Jesus naked? What do we learn from him? Well, here's what I think Mark is getting at. Nakedness is a symbol of shame. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. After they sinned, they were naked and they were ashamed. So they ran and they hid. I believe that what we're supposed to learn is is a very sobering lesson here. Watch here. When we trust in ourselves more than in God's control, when we submit to our flesh more than we submit to God's will, we will flee God's mission. And watch here. When we faithlessly flee God's mission, we will experience shame. Every time. All you have to do is is look down the road at where Judas's faithless betrayal led him to shame. All you got to do is look at where Peter's faithless denial led him. We'll look at it next week. Shame. How both of these men handled their shame was differently, but they both faced it. So take a sober warning as I close today. When you face a situation that's difficult, A trying time. And you decide to put more confidence in yourself than you do in God's sovereign control of the situation. Guess what will happen? You will inevitably say or do something that brings you shame. When you face a situation in which you're wrestling with right or wrong and you submit to your flesh in that moment instead of God's will in that moment, you will inevitably do or say something that brings you shame. Hear me, you are put on this earth to bring glory to your God and make him known to everybody. When you're unfaithful to that purpose, you will experience more shame than satisfaction. So in essence, here's what we walk away with today. Be faithful like Jesus by trusting in God's control 
and submitting to God's will. When you do that, here's what you get. Soul satisfaction. Submitting to God's will is harder at first, better in the long run. Trusting in God's control instead of taking control is harder at first, but better in the long run. You can experience shame by being faithless, like the disciples. Or you can experience satisfaction by being faithful to the mission that Jesus has called you to be faithful to. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Stand to your feet, everybody.